0: who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now Hello America happy Saturday I am so excited to have an incredible show stacked up for you in fact a rare moment To hear from someone who used to be at the top of the pinnacle of power here in Washington, former chief of staff to Dick Cheney. Scooter Libby, he used to be a household name. He got convicted of unmasking a CIA agent, Valerie Plum, during the Bush administration. Really kind of fell off a public radar, still a very important voice in national security. He had an extraordinary moment with President Trump, who pardoned him, and uh, remove that conviction from his record. My good friend here at Just the News, he's our night editor. We're so lucky to have him as our night editor. Roger Aronoff is in the house and he had some time with Scooter Libby. And we decided, you know what? It's such a rare opportunity. We really want to let you hear Roger's incredible interview. We've turned it into a podcast. I feel like it's really pretty cool. And I think you'll enjoy it. Roger is an extraordinary figure, tremendous journalist, a documentarian, one of our good editors at night. And he, of course, has some role in some other groups. It's important to remember that Scooter Libby went from being chief of staff to Vice President Cheney and assistant to President George W. Bush to being tried for perjury and obstruction of justice in the Valerie Blom case, right? And he, for most of the last two decades, he's been with the Hudson Institute. He's still doing really valuable work, but he's not as public as he used to be. He sat down with Roger in Roger's capacity as the executive director and editor of the Citizens Commission on National Security, a nonprofit that studies national security issues, tries to create the right Dynamic in America. It's an incredible, rare opportunity to hear from Scooter Libby. And I got to thank my good friend Roger Aronoff. He's going to be up first. We're going to play that in its entirety without any interruptions. And then, because we're on a roll, we're going to let you talk to a guy you probably haven't heard much about. He is an influential voice. His name is Mark Levin. And he is one of the most important thinkers in the fighting crime. And finally, recidivism space. Those are two different things, but they go hand in hand In when you have a common sense policy on law and order in America. He is the head of the Council on Criminal Justice, a conservative group that tries to find ways to create judicial reform for the people who have a chance of turning their life around. And law and order for all the rest of the criminals who shouldn't be released on the streets like we've been seeing. Mark Levin is going to have a really profound conversation. What a great Saturday. Scooter Libby, Mark Levin, Scooter Libby, compliments of my good friend Roger Aronoff. We're going to have both of those right after this commercial break. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. House Nutrition and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code justnews. That's promo code justnews at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code justnews for 15% off.
1: Welcome to the National Security Alert, brought to you by the Citizens Commission on National Security. Now, here's your host, Roger Aronoff.
2: Hello. Thanks for joining us today. We have an incredible guest. I'm excited to bring him to to the National Security Alert and look forward to having a really interesting discussion. My guest today is Scooter Libby. He was the uh, Chief of Staff to Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, He was advisor to President Bush. He has been in government and think tanks and politics for a long time, uh, and and I want to talk to you about several of the aspects of the national security issues we're facing today. But we're also going to get into some background and talk about the trial, the politics surrounding it. And uh, initially, I just want to greet my friend, Scooter Libby. Scooter, welcome to the National Security Alert.
3: Roger, okay. thank you for having me It's a pleasure to be here and uh, absolutely you've done great work over the years so i'm I'm glad to see that you're still carrying the torch for national security. Perfect.
2: Thank you so much um, so to give a little background I, i'm going to let you do the talking, but uh, I know you you went to yale that you through Paul Wolfowitz, I believe was your mentor that got you involved in uh, first the Reagan administration, later the Bush administration, uh, and, and now you cover so many different topics at, at uh, the Hudson Institute, the Middle East, China, uh, just uh, counterinsurgency, number of different topics. So why don't you give us a little background? How did Scooter Libby become this national security expert and uh, Tell us a little about your background and your career.
3: Well, it dawned on me eventually that I was not going to play in the National Football League. So I went to law school, um, practiced law for um, six years at one of the leading Philadelphia trial uh, firms. And I got contacted out of the blue um, to come to the State Department. So I decided that would be a useful thing to do. I've been concerned about national security and interested in it for many years. So I went to the State Department under Ronald Reagan. Uh, It was an exciting time to be there. He he was turning around U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union leading to the winning of of the Cold War. I went back to practice the law and then I was asked to go in to work in the Defense Department under what eventually became Secretary Cheney. And I was the principal deputy undersecretary, which is the number two policy job in the Pentagon, um, and enjoyed working there for four years, which included the collapse of the Soviet Union, the um, uh, Gulf War, and I had responsibility for contingency planning and for, um, for the Soviet bloc, as well as for the budget, which was in free fall at that point. So those were challenging years to be in. And I went back to practicing law again for eight years during the Clinton period uh, and uh, uh, came into uh, government when, uh, actually, during the debates of the 2000 campaign, Vice President Cheney debated Senator Lieberman, who was the Democratic vice presidential candidate, in a debate that most people consider the you know, sort of the highest part of the art form. And that was an interesting time, and after that, Uh, he asked me to come on board as his chief of staff and national security advisor, a combination of jobs that had never been done before because they're both full-time jobs. So um, it served our purpose, I think, but it was quite a challenging period. Since then, after I left the White House, I've been at the Hudson Institute.
2: Yeah, so uh, I want to know about that too, the Hudson Institute. Tell us about uh, that organization and what your responsibilities and areas of expertise there are.
3: Well, it was founded by Herman Kahn, the famous um, uh, nuclear strategist uh, and strategic thinker who had a huge reputation in the 70s and the 80s. He he died early, Um, but he was a very bold thinker and modeled his form on, sort of interdisciplinary studies of a problem. So he wouldn't just ask political scientists or just ask um, nuclear strategists how to approach a problem. He'd ask economists, anthropologists, um, uh, historians. So that type of multidisciplinary study was the foundation for Hudson Institute. And we still try and carry that out I'm a senior vice president here. Most of my work is um, for the Defense Department, for their internal think tank, where I work on strategy. I've worked on the Middle East and on the Far East.
2: So he was known as a futurist, as I recall, correct? That was-
3: That's, that's correct, right. He wrote it that what at the time was considered the world in 2000, which at the time was, you know, beyond the, the realm of imagination.
2: And in general, how did he do with his predictions of the future?
3: Well, some of them were very good. Uh, he missed a uh-huh. few.
2: <laughs> he wasn't Nostradamus, but, uh, but no, he did. No, he,
3: he was very good on nuclear strategy. He had some very good insights about He basically said, when everyone said America was in decline, he said, no, democracy and markets are going to do well. He was the first person to predict the rise of the uh, Japanese economy um, you know well before it became for a while they were a super state and people thought it might overtake the United States so he was um, he was very advanced in some portions yeah he also predicted that it would be a good thing to turn the Amazon into a giant lake and that would be an economic advantage for South America so he didn't get everything not everything came across in, in the way that he thought
2: well let's uh, move on to a topic that is uh made you famous, infamous in some ways, but it was something that I recognized at the time that you were being, I felt railroaded and that the the wrong people were being prosecuted here. But uh, we're talking about the whole issue with Joe Wilson, Valerie Plain, uh, Robert Novak, and the person who made this a criminal case against you was James Comey, who was Deputy Attorney General at the time, and he appointed Patrick Fitzgerald to basically prosecute you for perjury and, and lying to the investigators. And, and And what it was about was that uh, uh, Joe Wilson had taken a trip to Niger in Africa, looking to find out if the Iraqis had been there to purchase uranium, and he came back and basically said, uh, no, that wasn't the case, even though, as it turned out, that's what he had found, that, that they had been there. And and then you were accused of outing his wife as a CIA operative, Valerie Plame, and, and uh, just from the beginning, I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit because I, you know, I covered the trial and, and was there seeing everything and it was really an amazing experience, just the whole trial, the coverage of it. And I was with, I was the editor of Accuracy in Media and so I was covering it from that perspective, how the media was looking at it. And I think the way I want to talk about this before I toss it to you to talk about is, In preparing for this interview today, I was reading some things because this movie called uh, Fair Game with Sean Penn and Naomi Watts came out in 2010. And this was the one that was supposed to uh, emblazon or establish the actual story which uh, they made it where they were the heroes, you were the one that had had outed her. And and it was really just so full of lies and and misrepresentations. Uh, It still stands. As a matter of fact, just this week, as I was preparing for it, I saw HBO ran it this week. They're they're still showing that movie. And uh, so in my research, I came across this Washington Post editorial that I recall from back then. And I just want to read a little bit what they had to say. This is the Washington Post. And we at Accuracy in Media were constantly doing battle with them. But I think the way they put this really puts it in perspective. And this was, again, not at the time of the trial, which was 2007, but three years later, 2010, when the movie came out. And so I'm going to read a little bit from their editorial. It says, the movie portrays Mr. Wilson as a whistleblower who debunked a Bush administration claim that Iraq had tried to purchase uranium from the African country of Niger. In fact, an investigation by the Senate Intelligence Committee found that Mr. Wilson's reporting did not affect the intelligence community's view on the matter and an official British investigation found that President George W. Bush's statement in a State of the Union address that Britain believed that Iraq had sought uranium in Niger was well founded. Fair Game also resells the couple's story that Miss Plame's exposure was the result of a White House conspiracy. A lengthy and wasteful investigation by a special prosecutor found no such conspiracy But it did confirm that the prime source of the newspaper column identifying this Plain was a State Department official, not a White House political operative. And that State Department official was Richard Armitage. Doesn't name him in this piece, but obviously he was. Hollywood has a habit of making movies about historical events without regard for the truth. Fair Game is just one more example. But the film's reception illustrates a more troubling trend of political debates in Washington in which established facts are willfully ignored. Mr. Wilson claimed that he had proved that Mr. Bush deliberately twisted the truth about Iraq and he was eagerly embraced by those who insist the former president lied the country into a war. Though it was long ago established that Mr. Wilson himself was not telling the truth, not about his mission to Niger, and not about his wife. The myth endures. So with that introduction, why don't you tell us your memories of this trial and and this persecution, prosecution, and how you feel about that today?
3: Well, um, as Mark Twain said, but for the honor of it, Um, It was not much fun. I think he said that about a guy who was being tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail for no wrong. So uh, this was obviously an unpleasant period for me and my family, but it was more to the point it was a, a travesty for our justice system. It was one of these first cases where the media went crazy on an issue which happened to be against a Republican president. Um, and then later discovered, um, well, there actually was no truth here, but they didn't get around to really covering that part of it. So um, it was a shame. It was also a tragedy in that I believe it disrupted the administration's focus on a war and my ability to try and help with the proper direction of that war. So uh, there was nothing good about it at the mega level. There was nothing good about it at the individual level um, as it went forward. The... um, these are, the events that were an issue were in the summer of '03, and it was eventually proven, actually it was known at the start, that it was a State Department person who had talked to Novak for the article that became the subject. Um, after this, the uh, Washington Post wrote that editorial, the CIA general counsel came out with a book in which he said, there was no damage at all to national security from this. This was such a trivial incident. Of course, I had nothing to do with it, but it was such a trivial incident when it did happen that um, uh, he was amazed and thought the only justification for a prosecution was that it was political. Uh, Novak, who published the column that led to all this furor uh, also opined that this was simply a politicized trial. And I think that's how history is going to eventually look at it. So a shame in that score, a shame for our country, a shame that uh, um, when uh, we were trying to pursue a war, we got tied up in this mess over a phony claim of uh, damage to the national security, which has now been refuted, and over um, a false claim about what uh, Ambassador Wilson found. The CIA, a week after his article by name came out, the CIA came out with a statement saying, this is not true, we took what he said to support the case that Iraq was seeking uranium, and it wasn't important whether they got the uranium. There was only re- one reason for them to seek uranium. That was really the issue, and that one issue would be if they had a nuclear weapons program, so, or intended eventually to pursue a nuclear weapons program. So everything Wilson said was false, and that just began a cascade of events fanned by a press that was eager to find a scandal even when there was no scandal.
2: You know, one of the, I did a documentary called Confronting Iraq, Conflict and Hope, and looked at the evidence. And, and there was so much evidence that Saddam was still pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, there was the book, A Bomb in My Garden, by Dr. Obaidi, I think his name was, and and uh, how they had to bury these centrifuges in their backyard, and... and, and and there was plenty of other evidence. We talked to Tim Trevan, one of the weapons inspectors who'd been there, many things, but, uh, so, but now it's sort of accepted wisdom, conventional wisdom, that uh, there was no WMD found and the whole thing was basically built on a lie. And, and, and so I think, you know, there's that aspect of this. But I'd also like to visit, one of the days of the trial was really fascinating because uh, your side invited or or called for people to come up who you had talked to about this and the point was that you had not talked to any of them and not outed Valerie Plame and it was Bob Woodward and Glenn Kessler of the Post. It was David Sanger of the New York Times, Robert Novak himself. Um, Talk about that day of the trial and what what the
3: significance of that was to you. Well, um, everyone, the evidence was quite clear and everyone should have understood uh, that I didn't tell any reporter um, about um, Joe Wilson's um, spouse working at uh, the CIA. So um, t- to emphasize this point to the jury uh, to show that I was not the source of this, they knew who the source of it was, uh, they mean the government, uh, we brought on the reporters that I did speak to in this period. I didn't normally speak to many reporters but because this issue was hot, the vice president had asked me, in this case, to go out and talk to the reporters. So I did. Um, you know, probably not a great call in retrospect, uh, but I, I spoke to all of them. And their testimony was basically that I addressed the merits of the case as government is supposed to. I pointed out this, that the CIA had come out with a public statement saying um, there was no harm. I'm sorry, a public statement saying that uh, what Wilson had supposedly found was not. Um, what he actually found and what he actually found supported this NIE that the CIA had issued, um, which argued that Saddam was pursuing weapons of mass destruction. There were three levels here that need to be kept distinct. One is what was Saddam actually doing. The second level, which was all we could get because Saddam wasn't inviting inspectors in at that point, The second level was what was the administration told by the CIA was going on. And the CIA and every allied intelligence service was convinced that Saddam was pursuing uh, weapons of mass destruction, which is what um, uh, his own generals believed when they were interviewed after the war. And when he was interviewed after the war, he basically made it clear he had preserved his capabilities and intended to resume them. So um, the third level was whether Bush was lying when he, um, test- when he put into his State of the Union two basic principles. One, that Iraq was following, uh, pursuing weapons of mass destruction. And secondly, this particular piece of evidence about Niger, which the vice president uh, never cited, actually. Um, we didn't put that sentence into the uh, State of the Union. It was approved by the National Security Council. It was approved by the CIA itself. Um, and yet when all this blew up over Wilson's false claim about what he had found, um, we ended up having to talk to some reporters to refute it. And that was how basically I got involved in something which had nothing to do with me in its origins with the State of the Union, in its completion with Novak's article. Um, I was a little bit like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sitting there watching these uh, events go by until uh, uh, suddenly the prosecution came in and decided to put together some witnesses holding with, withholding evidence from them. Fortunately, after that Washington uh, Post article, not only did the CIA general counsel come out and refute Wilson again, uh, but um, one of the key witnesses in the case, Judith Miller, um, recanted her testimony. The evidence had been withheld from her by the prosecution that the prosecution had in order to get her to testify in a certain way, which she then did in good faith, but she testified falsely. And she later published a book saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I testified falsely in that case, and my testimony was viewed as important because I had made some notes which were misleading to me, me meeting Judith Miller. So um, uh, just another layer of the farce that went on. It's a shame, you know, there were important issues to be addressed for the country and still are.
2: So for the record, and then we'll move on to some current issues. Uh, You were convicted on four or five charges, two perjury, one obstruction of justice, one making false statements and acquitted of one of the false statements charges. And later your sentence was commuted by President Bush and then later you were completely pardoned by President Trump in 2017. So uh, what do you want to say about any of that?
3: Well, just to complete the list, in between there, um, before Trump issued his pardon, the DC bar undertook a one-year investigation of the case. And the end of that was to say that I should be readmitted to the practice of law it's, it's a fine point of D.C. law, but you can only be readmitted if you're claiming your innocence if the D.C. Bar Council determines you had a good reason to say you were innocent. So they did a year-long investigation of it. They looked into the case thoroughly and decided, you know, there was it was perfectly justified for me to be saying uh, I didn't do anything wrong. And that's what the record basically shows. The jury verdict was sad. Juries do strange things from time to time. So anyway, those events were now wiped out by the pardon. Um, the years were lost, but I'm glad that the DC court at least restored my license to practice law, which is um, you know, some small consolation.
2: All right, moving on. Uh, today we have a world in turmoil and with a lot of issues that are just really threatening America's national security. And we're gonna touch on several of those. And I know they're all within your bailiwick, basically your areas of expertise. And then we're going to start with China. And I wanted your big picture, how you see them as a a threat uh, to the West, to the US, to their region of the world, and uh, what we need to do about it.
3: Well, that's a large question. Let me draw the lens back for a second okay. here. And back in, um, when, after the Soviet Union fell apart, roughly 1990, 91, 92, um, Charles Krauthammer, um, the terrific national security thinker and columnist, wrote a column in which he spoke about the unipolar moment. That is to say, America, without a Soviet competitor, stood supreme in the world at that point. Our forces were vastly greater than any other. Our economy was greater. Our ideology had proven greater than that um, of the Soviet Union, which had pushed Marxist, Leninism. And his point about it being a unipolar moment was taken to heart by many people. Unfortunately, many of them missed the part where he said moment. Challenges would come again, Krauthammer was saying. But we proceeded to diminish our defense budget. Um, we uh, looked for um, ways in which we could help improve the world. We tried to create a liberal rules-based order. We did well by what we thought we could do. There were good things and bad things done in that period. It's a human enterprise government, and, and we had many countries around the world who didn't see the way we, world the way we do or we wish to. China was among those, and for a while they took advantage of the situation in terms of um, uh, violating IP laws, stealing um, intellectual property, uh, conducting their trade in a fashion which in our domestic market, if they had done that, it would be considered an antitrust violation, and they started to grow their economy, they started to build their navy, And all that time, we were napping, frankly. We were too optimistic. The Soviet Union, uh, which considered itself a communist state, or a totalitarian socialist state, had believed um, that they could convince the world to their system, and they had failed. Democracy had survived, and a free market had prospered. So China took advantage of this. America thought, well, maybe the Chinese will follow the... soviet pattern and they'll fall apart when they try and prosper because their system doesn't work well well they unfortunately they watched the soviet example and they took serious lessons from it and it's one of the main themes that uh chinese president xi argues today is look what happened to those guys we don't want that to happen to us and so they have tried to adjust within that system he now may be Uh, reverting and a way which may or may not help them, but it seems to be likely to be problems for the longer run. But in the process they've built up a very powerful navy, they've built up a rich treasury, they're the second largest economy on earth and depending on how you uh, count purchasing power parity or nominally, um, they pose a real economic competitor and peer for us. And with that comes power and they have decided to employ that power in predatory ways seizing part of the South China Sea, trying to make it a Chinese lake, which would have great strategic significance, and also um, uh, trade violations. They have this predatory uh, lending policy known as the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, to extend their influence. So they present a real challenge and America needs to be alert to that challenge. For a long time, we were overly optimistic about it. For a long time, we then waved some rhetoric at it without investing And we are still uh, neglecting the investing that we need to do in order to meet what could be a very serious challenge. We, We need to recognize there's no longer a unipolar world, there is a challenged world, and there are people or countries who would handle themselves in ways which are inimical to our interest, to those of our allies, and which will turn to force if they have the opportunity to benefit from force. And our job should be not to allow that to happen, to keep enough of a, of a margin of safety that bad countries are not tempted, even under bad circumstances, to try and uh, exploit the situation of Western weakness. We can see what happens in Ukraine today when a country determines it can get away with just a blatant aggression. We should not want that to extend to very important parts of the world, in addition to Ukraine.
2: So we'll come back to Ukraine in a few minutes, but uh, further on China, uh, you brought up the Belt and Road Initiative, which is really a way that they come into countries that need expanded infrastructure, and they offer it to them on terms that probably they're not gonna be able to live up to down the road, and China looks at this as uh, a way that they can gain influence, even total control over a number of countries in Africa and in South America, and and it's really just an alarming prospect of just seeing, they're trying to analyze their overall strategy and what they're doing. And then we have the China Initiative going and uh, dropped that where we were really pursuing their theft of intellectual property, as you mentioned, and, uh, you know, the threat and how they sort of have extended into our university system, our economic system, Hollywood. It, it really, they, they're gaining just a huge measure of control and power over much of the world. And, uh, so what, what do you think of that? of their reach
3: today well they um, they have their weaknesses but they also have their strengths and among their strengths is a concerted effort system-wide to influence other countries to confuse them to sow doubt to exploit corruptibility uh, and to exploit weakness and the BRI poses as a good faith investment in, you know, country X's port or country Y's um, uh, airport facilities. But in fact, it's an, it's an advanced effort to uh, impose Chinese step-by-step, inch-by-inch incremental control to uh, bring China's hand onto local politics and improve its geostrategic positioning. It's as much a geostrategic play as it is an economic play. And we have to be alert to this and we, the West needs to respond or suffer the consequences. What China is doing ironically is not much different than what European powers did to weak third world countries, the phrase didn't exist in those days, but to weak uh, countries during the colonial era. They are expanding their uh, footprint in a way to increase their commercial and their political military positioning. And if we allow that to continue without an effective uh, counter, if we allow them to continue to sow dis, um, uh, dissent within countries and to um, pervert the attention of the leaderships there, we will suffer consequences. And those consequences um, can be anything from a mild irritation to disaster. And we should not be uh, allowing that to continue um, without trying to match it or di- or divert it itself. And a large part of this is, has to do with the military balance, where we have unfortunately been under-investing for some time. And the debts and problems that we incurred during the COVID era are only going to make it harder to turn that around.
2: So how do you see their role in the pandemic, COVID, the Wuhan lab, how they've Dealt with it both domestically and what their responsibility is for the nation, for the worldwide pandemic. How, right. how do you see that?
3: So it seems that um, there, was, there was a Chinese defense at one point that COVID came out of a wet food, uh, a wet market, uh, a, a market that sells uh, dead animals and blood is around. And so it's an easy interface from animal to human. There's another school of thought, which I think is probably the better one, that actually there was a um, genetic manipulation involved coming out of the lab that the Chinese run at Wuhan, where they were doing research. I think the clearest case, unfortunately, to make a real determination on that, you need the cooperation of the Chinese, which they've been very careful not to give. They've sanitized the lab, they've uh, restricted access, they've um, uh, spread disinformation, they've hidden evidence for months. So um, that's a very hard case to, to get after, although I think in the end of the day, sensible people will reach a conclusion. But what seems even clearer and what can be established is that China knew they had a deadly disease going on loose in their country for whatever reason or however it got loose. It was loose in their country. They knew it, they had obligations to inform the world that we have a dangerous situation coming on here, which may be transmissible through the air, human to human, uh, which um, may be resistant to particular types of drugs. Uh, And, you know, beware and uh, keep your citizens away, keep them safe. Instead, they invited people in, they hid the truth for uh, what looks to be now months. There is recent reporting um, that they knew back in, well, back in August and September, they were beginning to hoard medical supplies, which was against their pattern in that time. So whether that report or not is right, there are other reports that in September, October, they knew this disease was loose, and they suspected, or um, at local and perhaps national level, they suspected what was going on. And international law is quite clear um, the responsibility of a country stems to its local as well as its national officials. So they knew, and yet it seems pretty clear, they withheld that evidence to the world's detriment. To demonstrate this, let's look at November of uh, um, 2020. The disease started in America sometime around uh, the new year of, of 2020. By November, we had a vaccine, remarkably, we had a vaccine, but many people had been infected. So if um, they had alerted us earlier, we had cut off travel earlier, taken precautions earlier, um, uh, we would not have had as many casualties by the time the vaccine was ready. So however people calculate this, and some scientists have undertaken calculations, we now have a million dead from COVID that number would have been significantly less. So I can't, I'm not the statistician to be able to tell you whether that's 100,000 lives or 300,000 lives or more, but it was a lot of people who died in that era who did not need to die if the medical countermeasures had been developed sooner, Um, which is to say if we had not had as vast a level of of, um, exposure as we had because of what they hid. And that was against their international obligations. Now, it seems terrible to say that a major country allowed people to be infected in order to serve its presumably domestic and international purposes. And you can see that it would have been very awkward for President Xi if he had to suffer China being only the the only country which suffered major damage from this because he had acted responsibly and closed down the borders and tried to get this under control before spreading it to the international community. That seems a terrible thing to say, but there is another aspect that's going on today, fentanyl. Fentanyl is killing thousands of people, tens of thousands of people around the world. Fentanyl is largely being spurred by within China, and yet they are allowing that to continue. So when someone says, well, you know, it's almost unimaginable that someone would spread poison through the world, it seems pretty imaginable that China is spreading the fentanyl poisoning and that China did obscure the dangers from COVID to our detriment.
2: Well, yes. And to follow up on that, the fentanyl is mostly coming through our southern border. And I uh, know that's not necessarily one of your areas of expertise, the border security, but I'm wondering how this has empowered the cartels, the trafficking that's going on there. And it's certainly a national security issue. What do you see with our policy toward the southern border and how that's being handled?
3: Well, as you say, this is that? not... This is not an area that I look at deeply, but it's pretty clear from the raw statistics that um, the number of people crossing illegally has dramatically increased. And with them has come this very dangerous drug, fentanyl. And with them are coming uh, people who I've seen published reports um, have terrorist backgrounds or links to terrorist groups who are coming in, whereas we guard carefully our borders at the airports. They're sort of coming in through the back door. Um, this all seems very unfortunate. We need immigration. Immigration is very important. We need um, world citizens who come in through our system to work here, to study here, but we should do it in an orderly, legal fashion. Um, instead, we are running a system that empowers cartels. We know it results by, by seeming to welcome illegal immigration, we know that we are inducing people to come over with kids, with young girls who are mistreated, uh, to be phrase it mildly, um, as they come into the country. In the law, there's a, a principle known as an attractive nuisance. If you, if you have a swimming pool in your backyard, you're responsible to fence it in so that, you know, kids and people don't wander in to use your pool and then have some accident where they're harmed we are running the world's largest attractive nuisance by allowing people to come in through the border, through gangs, um, and cartels who are bringing in both drugs and abusing people and stealing their wealth in order to put them in line to get in.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's been a disaster, but let's move back uh, to some foreign policy. The Middle East, Israel, the Abraham Accords, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. What are your, views on how that's going these days. Again, I know it's a big topic, <laughs> to throw out well, the single question, but uh, we're the, Abraham
3: or, the Abraham Sorry. Accords, the Abraham Accords, were an important uh, um, accomplishment of the Trump administration. Uh, the, uh, it was land break, uh, record breaking sort of activity to put Israel in Um, normal relations with a number of Middle Eastern countries, and it seems like there should be more to come, assuming that events roll out and continue to roll in the fashion that they were towards the end of the Trump administration. So it's um, a very important step, and it was possible for a few reasons. One is that it put the Palestinian issue into perspective. It has for too long... Um, uh, been seen by some people in the foreign policy community as the single driving issue in the Middle East. Having had many discussions with Sunni and Shia leaders from the Middle East, uh, it is not the greatest issue from that region. I'm not sure it ever was, but it certainly has not been in recent times uh, among the Sunni uh, nations. Uh, the largest issue is the growth of the terror state of Iran and its um, its financial resources, its terrorist outreach, its effort to surround uh, some of the Sunni leadership countries with their proxies who engage in um, uh, illegal and terrorist activities. And that is a great national security issue both to Israel and to the Sunni states. And it's because they face that problem that the Abraham Accords could be struck because the uh, moderate Sunni states, to use some term to distinguish them from the others, uh, the moderate Sunni states understood they have a greater problem in Iran and they need they need uh, Israel's backing to help confront Iran.
2: Yeah. Now, speaking of Iran, um, we've got the issue of the JCPOA, the, uh, which is so the Iranian nuke nuclear deal that was agreed to between the Obama administration, the P5 plus one and Iran back in 2015. Now, one thing that I want to bring up here is uh, Mike Pompeo, who has uh, been a co-author with you in several articles that I've seen in doing my research here, including the Washington Post, but back when uh, when the JCPOA was established uh, Pompeo was pressing the State Department to see the signed documents and finally in November of that year the State Department sent a letter that I've posted on several articles that know that, that, that it was never a signed agreement, it was not an executive agreement, it was just a series of political commitments. At which time Pompeo, who is uh, the House Intelligence Committee, uh, put up a press release and, you know, now that we know this, the whole thing is basically worthless. I mean, first of all, the enforcement uh, and inspection standards in the agreement were so weak, the military bases were off limits to inspections and any inspections that the IAEA was going to do We're going to have to give 21 days notice to, before they could go into a place. And, and so now there seems to be this just desperation almost on the part of the Biden administration to get back into this agreement, willing to make all sorts of compromises with the result that I, I believe uh, is certainly not going to uh, limit Iran's appetite for nuclear weapons, and nor nor, we also consider them the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. This would put some hundred plus billion dollars and allow them to sell oil again. It seems absurd to me that we want to get back into this agreement, and uh, they are a huge threat. And we see now their largest rival in the area, Saudi Arabia, and now uh, Biden is talking about new sanctions on them because of their recent OPEC decision, cutting the, the oil production by 2 million barrels a day. So what, tell, tell me, what are your thoughts on this, on, on the JCPOA, on the desire to get back in it, and the, the larger threat that Iran poses today?
3: Other large question um, I'm glad you've been reporting on this and bringing out what was and wasn't done with the first Jcpoa um, you know it's called a joint plan uh, as you say it was not really an agreement um, it wasn't really binding on either side to the extent that it had terms that those terms were clearly missold by the uh, Obama administration back in the day they claimed that everything could be inspected within a certain amount of time and as first as you point out there were areas that were not subject to inspection Uh, but in addition to those that were um, they were they described a certain time frame that had to be adhered to and um, in fact there were big holes in those time frames periods in which the the clock stopped. It's as if you said the football game had to be played in 60 minutes because there's 60 minutes of clock time, but in fact, they stop it at various times. And those, those stoppages, unlike a football game, could have gone on indefinitely while different discussions were held. So the agreement didn't do what it was sold to the American people to do. So whether you argue it's the best we can do because we have to slow down their program, or whether you argue, as the Israelis do, that A, it doesn't slow it down reliably, and B, at the end of the day, it gives them a clear path to a weapon and the desire was to have them be in a state where they would never have a weapon because they are the world's leading terrorist state and they have surrounded Israel with rockets to discourage Israel from doing anything and they have no compunction apparently about releasing those rockets against civilian areas, not military areas. So this is a, a state which has been supporting terror throughout the region into South America I recall there were times when they've um, supported terror here inside the United States. It is not the sort of country that you want to have a nuclear weapon. And um, those who say, well, the JCPOA will delay it have to recognize as well that in time, if they're willing to cheat, and there's no reason to believe they're not willing to cheat, you will have to face a nuclear-armed Iran. So I personally do not believe the JCPOA was the way to go in 2015, but that's the way that it started, and President Biden seems determined if he can plead and beg and bribe uh, or offer rewards to, to put it in a more polite way, Uh, he's determined to use all those tools to try and get them back into an agreement which the people most concerned, uh, the Israelis, if not us, um, recognize to pose a long-term threat
2: why do you think he is so desperate to get back in this? Is it just to claim another foreign policy achievement, uh, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, or what What do you think his, his motive is here?
3: Well, you know, Roger, uh, President Biden and I don't go drinking as much as you might imagine. So it's not easy for me to determine what he's thinking. Uh, from the public statements, I think the, the good interpretation, the most Biden-friendly interpretation would be believe, he believes he's in a bad situation and slowing them down is better than nothing. I think the less generous interpretation would be, you know, this mess started with the JCPOA when he was vice president. He believed in it then. Uh, and he was. It was important to the Biden. I'm sorry, to the Obama administration, because it pushed down the road the time when Iran would be openly a nuclear weapon state, and I think President Obama did not want that to happen on his watch. So unfortunately, the less generous interpretation is that some of that same phenomena is at work here. Uh, I'll leave it to you to sit down with President Biden someday and find out which he's which route he's following. Neither ends right.
2: well, i one, one more topic we'll delve into, and that's Russia, Ukraine, the war. And let me start it this way. How much did the energy policies of the Biden administration influence what has gone on there in terms of the financing Russia's end of the war as far as making the rest of the world dependent on Iran, Russia and Venezuela for the world's oil supply to keep, keep uh, people warm during this coming winter and all this. So how much did, did that policy have an influence on Russia's decision to invade? And then we'll talk, talk about the actual war and how you see that.
3: Okay. So uh, Putin head of Russia, uh, clearly had in mind for a long time regaining Ukraine as part of Russia, if he could. And if not, regaining parts of Ukraine, if he could. Now, the question becomes, what will the world's reaction be? And he had a test case of this in 2014, when he invaded Crimea and put um, uh, unacknowledged Russian soldiers into parts of Southeastern and Eastern Ukraine. The Little Green Men, they were called at the time, because they didn't have any epaulets showing their, uh, what army they were from, but it was widely established and believed and established that they were um, tools of the Soviet, of the sorry, Russian regime. So he went in in 2014 and he basically got away with it. The world um, huffed and puffed, there were sanctions imposed, Um, The world declared it unacceptable, but, and this is the important but, the costs they imposed on Putin were acceptable to him. So we may say it's unacceptable, but then if the costs imposed on uh, the aggressor are not unacceptable to the aggressor, they end up gaining something which he considered of great value, Crimea, and disrupting Ukraine. And that war then continued without great effect for the next Uh, eight years until he launched, he started under the Obama administration, then he launched in February of 2022 under the Biden administration, an attempt to take more of Ukraine. Clearly um, aiming if it would fall easily, that would be great, but if it didn't, he had designs on the Black Sea coast and the Southeastern and Eastern Ukraine. And those areas he has made progress in Recently, the Ukrainians have pushed back um, with when they eventually received some of the higher tech weaponry. They needed longer range weaponry they needed in order to defend their country. Um, and so now we're dealing with the uncertain end game as to where we are at that point. Now, what made Putin decide he could get away with this in uh, 2014 and then again in 2022? And here is where I think your question uh, poses a very interesting variable. I believe Putin has always calculated he could get away with Crimea because in the end of the day, the West needs Russia and doesn't want to fully alienate Russia. Um, Why? Well, partly because of the energy resources that Russia brings to the table, very, very critical right now for uh, Europe. Now, the Biden administration approved the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which increased, had the prospects of increasing Western Europe's reliance on cheaper Soviet, uh, sorry again, Russian uh, gas, natural gas. So in that sense, the Biden administration was reversing policy, which had tried to stop Nord Stream 2 and improving Putin's hand. And I think that coupled with America's two-year effort to the Biden administration's two-year effort to reverse Trump administration policy, which encouraged fracking and development of domestic energy resources, um, uh, gave him another card because Europe didn't have other options. So he could calculate Europe is coming into a very cold winter and they're gonna need Russia eventually. We are the prime source of cheap gas and they will eventually have to come around and readmit us to the world of nations. And so I believe that these factors did help Putin decide he could do this and get away with it. And his miscalculation was not so much on that element. His miscalculation was that his forces have not done as well, and the Ukrainians have stood up more bravely than he might have expected. There is another variable in this, which I'll just mention briefly. This was an aggression against a central european state on the doorstep of nato this is not somewhere removed from the heart of of western concerns it was very much on the doorstep point one an important state right there next to nato and while nato has said we'll defend nato territory they've been much cooler towards defending ukraine point one point two this isn't just any country again It's a country that in the Clinton administration, we, to induce them to give up their nuclear weapons, Ukraine at that point had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, and they gave it up entirely in part based on our promise and the Russians' promise not to violate the sovereignty of Ukraine and not to use force or the threat of force against Ukraine. And clearly the Russians have violated that So we're not just talking about an important country strategically, we're talking about an important country that we had promised that we would not allow and the Russians had promised more to the point that they would not threaten. Uh, And then finally, we have put a big hole in our non-proliferation policy because what other state looking forward will say, oh yes, I can give up my nuclear weapons because uh, the West is gonna take care of me against aggressions. And unfortunately, the case law on that, as lawyers would say, is very weak because we have not yet forced the Russians to give up and to pay for their wrongful aggression against Ukraine. Once again, we have the issue of accountability for wrongful deeds. We had it with China to start this conversation, and we're having it now with Russia at this end of the conversation.
2: So what's happened in the last couple of weeks is... It was really looking like Ukraine was reversing Russia's uh, occupation of different areas, driving them out. We see the morale is low. When they called for drafting 300,000 more people, Russians took to the streets and took to the borders to leave the country and, and really they seem in a great bind. And then we had the incident with the bridge the explosion on the bridge, and then Russia's seemingly indiscriminate missile attacks in civilian areas, and which has sort of brought the conversation back to: well, how does this thing end, and what role should the U.S. and the U.N. now have? Should we be going to try to get a negotiated settlement, a ceasefire, uh, and, and even if that means Ukraine giving up some? Land that they absolutely don't want to give up, and then you have the context of uh, Zelensky talking to the G7, asking for more anti-missile defense, and I mean he hasn't been given a lot of the stuff that he wanted. the The 29 MIGs that were originally going to come from Poland, and Poland says, you know, if you want to give them to him, you give them to him, and we didn't want to do that to sort of. Uh, Further agitate Russia. So, uh, the question on everyone's mind is how does this end? And are we really stuck with the bill to finance and rebuild Ukraine? And if so, how long is this going to go on? And what do you see as a possible end game scenario here?
3: Well, this is uh, the question of the hour. Uh, not an easy ending to see. Um, we have, I think it was Henry James who said that fiction is the conflict of, of uh, two viewpoints. We have Putin wanting to seize this territory and who now perhaps sees his own domestic position under threat as the Russian people do not seem and certainly their forces do not seem to have taken this uh, as a as a worthy of national effort and um, the deaths of their soldiers. Uh, And Ukraine who says, we have a country and this is a wrongful aggression and they are certainly right in that. Putin on his side has declared that this is about Russian civilization and about one people joined together through time memorial. Uh, And Ukraine says, no, we voted 90% in a plebiscite to be independent of those guys, and we want our uh, independence, um, which uh, seems to be strongly held um, perhaps throughout, but certainly from the middle of Ukraine to the West. So how it ends is partly a question of the will of the Ukrainian people, and partly of the question of how much the West will support Ukraine in its generally recognized right to defend itself against an unprovoked and wrongful aggression. And it's hard to say. The one thing I would consider is that uh, we could have different stages of this, all of which, none of which are final. George Shultz used to say that in Washington no issue ever goes away. No issue terminates, it just gets kicked down the road. I believe as long as Putin is running Russia, if he ever sees the opportunity to continue incrementally slicing parts of Ukraine off, he will probably do so. So even if we get an agreement, I would consider it most likely a temporary agreement. And there will be a race at that point to shore up Ukraine so that he doesn't see an easy target a second time. And that will entail both um, expense on the civil side, and also um, uh, helping them rebuild their military stock up for the types of weapons that they would need to make sure that the next time a general walks into Putin's office, he doesn't say, oh yeah, boss, we can do this one and we can do it pretty well and pretty quickly and at reasonable cost and without a national call-up. That seems to have been what happened the first time. We would want to make sure that it doesn't happen a second time. Now, who bears the cost of that? It's on Europe's doorstep. Europe should certainly bear a heavy part of the cost of it. But as we can see today, there is is a strong U.S. interest in the security of Europe. There is a strong U.S. interest in the sanctity of our word given to Ukraine under the Clinton administration in the early 1990s. And we have a strong interest in not having a situation develop that then suddenly escalates into the point where people are talking about nuclear war. We don't want to be back to where we are today. And I think the better case for that is for the U.S. to build up its own defenses and help Ukraine become the porcupine that it should be to convince Russia this isn't going to work. Don't try it again. That has succeeded in the past. Finland at one point was invaded by Russia in the years past and showed they were a very tough nut to crack, even though they were outmanned, their economy was not nearly the same size, their forces were not as large. Ukraine needs to be in. That sort of state, and to have some relationship with NATO, which will convince the Russians that once again, that this is too hard an apple to bite into.
2: All right. So listen, I want to thank you. You've given us this hour. I'm going to ask you one kind of closing question, which is the overall fragility of our national security today. Just. Uh, in summary, and if there's any final closing thoughts that you have, that any points that we left out, anything you want to mention. And again, uh, thanks for coming on National Security Alert and talking about all this. It's uh, really wonderful getting your views.
3: Well, thank you, Roger. Um, thanks for having me and thanks for um, keeping at this task of explaining to the American people where we are and what the risks are done. Good work in the past. And I'm glad to see you're continuing it. I would just end with where I started, which is uh, the world is a messy place. We, for a while we could coast on the belief that we were in our unipolar moment, but the moment has passed. And if we allow our, um, our strength to diminish to the point where aggressors think they have an opportunity. And sometimes that doesn't take much of a hope for them to seize that moment if they think our will is weak or our capabilities are weak, or if they're desperate for other reasons. We need to be able to, uh, to dominate that situation quickly with the least possible cost and first off deter it, the most important thing. And strength deters, weakness provokes. That has been proven historically. Uh, I hope we don't have to prove it again, but it seems like we're getting closer to the point uh, where we might run that type of risk. I would remind folk about Task Force Smith in the 1950s. Most people have forgotten Task Force Smith, which was a unit of American soldiers who were parked up near Korea in 1950. They were not properly prepared, they were not properly trained, but they were up there when the North Koreans came pouring over the border between North and South Korea, and they suffered tremendously. And those young lives that were lost, those honorable men, who were men and women, who were there to defend America um, at the forefront of the trial with and our adversaries at that stage, um, we sort of let them down because we did not Equipped them properly, we didn't prepare them properly, we didn't consider the issue strongly enough that the aggressors understood we will dominate, we will come in and, and end this war on our terms, don't start it. We should avoid having those types of losses again, which could come from a miss- missile from the Chinese mainland against a U.S. ship, which could come from many other different threats, which could come out of the Middle East if Iran receives the funds that they hope to receive. We are um, at a moment where our national security so far is fine, but that doesn't mean we can't suffer grievous wrongs and we should try and do what we can to avoid those wrongs.
2: So tell us in closing, uh, how people can learn more about you. I know it's, I believe, hudson.org and go to experts and it's Lewis, Libby. Uh, What about, you have a book out, it's not recent, but why don't you tell us briefly the the name of the book, where they can find it, if you have any social media you want people to check out, and uh, we'll we'll just wrap it up there.
3: Well, thank you, Um, Roger. um, Hudson.org is the proper uh, website which lists many of my writings. I do have a novel that I wrote years ago called The Apprentice. And uh, it was uh, well-received before politics came into the picture. That all the rev- You can divide the reviews by pre-Bush administration and post-Bush administration. The pre ones were very good. So, um, and uh, thank you for uh, what you do and let's um, look forward to talking to you again and I hope uh, you continue to shed light on these issues because they're very important.
2: Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's been a very enlightening hour. Very appreciative of our guests, Lewis, Scooter, Libby.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out or a family member for free. What a great opportunity. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The US is 34 plus trillion dollars in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text just news to 989898 98 98 right now. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of working with a couple of great documentarians, and we created an entire documentary about the civil asset forfeiture programs that local and federal police departments had used. And it really took a look at not just the crime fighting element of it, but the fact that it had become a budget line in many cities and police were under pressure to seize as much property as possible so that they could get remuneration and it would go back into their police budget. And it created a culture where maybe the Fourth Amendment and due process had been set aside in favor of basically profit making and had a profoundly won a lot of awards, raised a lot of questions. Our next guest, Mark Levin, he has been working on criminal justice reform for many years and really is on the forefront of the issues that keep our men and women blue supported, but also find the right and equitable way to make sure that punishment is distributed fairly. He's clerked on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most influential federal appeals court, and he's currently the chief policy counsel at the Council on Criminal Justice. Joining us right now, Mark Levin. Mark, great to have you on.
1: Great to talk with you.
0: Huge fan of your work. You do a lot of writing. You do a lot of symposiums. We're at this extraordinary moment where some of the issues that traditional liberals cared about 40, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they've abandoned and conservatives, particularly those worried about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, have begun to take up this criminal justice reform, the idea of fairness in the system, due process. Where are we in that debate and how have the parties a little bit shifted on these issues? It seems like conservatives are more engaged on the issue right now than liberals. Well
1: you know it's a great point the The skepticism of government I think is one thing that unites those of us on the center right and frankly uh, there's civil libertarians on the left who are um, in that boat too um, and it you know it doesn't mean cynicism uh, or you know that we want uh, we obviously don't want anarchy or anything but we we do think that um, we need the lens of transparency and accountability on what government does and we have to have the right incentives as you alluded to with civil asset forfeiture. we have a perverse incentive um, and uh, uh, so you actually hear cases where you know the side of the road where the drugs are; those people are not pulled over, but where the cash is going the other way, all of that. And of course, you know, if it's contraband, if it's the fruit of illegal activity, it it it, it it's entirely appropriate to seize and forfeit it. But unfortunately, what's happened is a lot of innocent people have gotten caught up in it. Um, and there's basically you have to prove a negative. You have to prove that uh, under civil asset forfeiture that that your cash, your um, car. Anything you own was not a uh, part of criminal activity. Otherwise, the government gets to keep it.
0: That's right. No, so important. And I think a lot of people don't realize the processes that are going behind the scene that there are basically whole units that are dedicated to just finding a way to create civil asset forfeiture. And sometimes they seize things that really aren't in the realm of proper punishment, but the people whose assets are being seized don't have the wherewithal to fight it. And so it becomes sort of a surrender moment i want to start because some people may not be familiar with what the council on criminal justice is but it's a very influential voice can you give us a quick overview of what the council does and its importance in the policy realm today
1: well, we're, uh, I would say, the center of gravity on criminal justice policy and, and data, importantly. We've put out uh, the most uh, timely crime data, uh, which unfortunately, of course, has not been good news recently. Um, but it's important that we actually have that data so we can uh, inform policymakers. So, and then we have uh, task forces and commissions. So, for example, we have our new commission on veterans in the justice system uh, that uh, uh, is chaired by former uh, Nebraska Senator and Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. Um and so we 're looking at ways through um, uh, you know treatment I and mean, obviously there 's veterans' courts that have been very successful but they reach a small percentage of veterans in the justice system. But what we can do really to both reduce recidivism, which is a way of reducing crime, and also get people you know productively employed and reintegrated into society right
0: yeah, such an important moment in debate in the moment that we live in early on, the first step act under President Trump was really hailed by conservatives and Democrats alike. It was one of the few bipartisan achievements that President Trump had in his term. As crime has gotten worse in the city, some people have tried to back away from that law, including people who voted for it. But that's not really the issue here, right? It isn't the First Step Act, per se. It it may be some of the other policies that some of these far-left district attorneys are that are really creating the greater problem. These big crime surges we've seen in, in major cities, whether it's L.A., Chicago, what is driving that right now?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very uh, uh, complicated question, but I can tell you the first part is simple, that the federal, you know, the First Step Act only covered federal crimes and cases, which are a very small percentage. Uh, uh, less than 10 percent of uh, prisoners are in the federal system. And, of course, the percentage of cases that are federal is is much smaller than 10 percent. Um, So And actually, we have data on people that have been released under the compassionate uh, release uh, law uh, that was affected by the First Step Act, as well as Attorney General Barr's um, memo. And it's it's really incredible. It's 1% or less of people have gone back to prison. Now, there was a lot of careful screening. It wasn't just randomly releasing people. They had to meet all sorts of criteria.
0: That's the key part is the screening, isn't it?
1: Yes. And so... um, uh, and then there was also efforts to, you know, in terms of reentry, to to ensure they had supervision and, you know, to connect them with housing and employment and so forth. So it's been quite successful now, but obviously... Um, uh, what's not working out so well is, is, you know, uh, the high rates of crime, you know, in uh, particularly homicides in, in major urban areas and even other parts of the country. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, some of it, I think has to do with obviously the pandemic and restrictions associated with it, but also the courts closed in so many places. I mean, it took them forever to reopen courts in San Francisco, even in Houston, um, where I live, uh, the court backlog is, I mean, it's, it's going to take years. They said in Seattle, even on just the felony, uh, it could take 10 years to clear out all the cases. Um, so when there's no accountability in any kind of near-term foreseeable way, I mean, I think it, it obviously emboldens criminal activity.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Any doubt in your mind that crime and the issue of security in blue cities has become one of the major driving forces of the midterm elections?
1: Well, no it's clear obviously from from every uh, uh every poll and i think um you know it's um i, I one thing i want to you know really encourage uh folks to do is make sure you have to do the basics first which is obviously getting your courts running and having um you know both you know um uh, accountability and also treatment and rehabilitation but you know it's the other thing that was preventing crime you know, I. I, I think that, you know, if we look at something like flooding, right, we don't put uh, 100% of resources into cleaning up after floods and 0% into preventing floods. So some of the cities like Dallas has made a lot of headway on, on things like street lighting, getting rid of blight, um, really cleaning up neighborhoods and, and partnering be- partnerships between police and neighborhoods, uh, because, you know, police need the information from citizens about who's perpetrating the crimes. And we also know if you've got well-lit streets and uh, kind of uh, strong neighborhoods, things like we just had National Night Out, these things can uh, help prevent crime. And then if when it does occur, increase the rate at which we solve crimes. I mean, the clearance rate for homicides is now less than 50 percent, and it's far less for non-fatal shootings.
0: Yeah, that's a real issue. The state of police departments, the morale, the number of retiring or taking early retirement, is it reversible, and what are the keys to getting police feeling like they're on good footing again?
1: Well, the the vacancies are just uh, a huge problem across the country, and even in you know jurisdictions like I had a call from a city council member in Springfield, Missouri. And it's one of the most conservative cities. They never even thought about defunding the police, but there are you know hundreds of st- uh, you know positions uh, short, and um, you know it's um, I think certainly part of it is is um, Uh, some people retired during COVID, um, more so than before. Um, and then the other thing is we need to get, um, I think a broader range of people into policing, including women. There's a great initiative, 30 by 30. Currently women are only 11% of officers. And this would goal is to have it be 30% by 2030. And so engaging, you know, high school students, community college, college uh, kids, and and, and really let them know that policing is a very noble profession and, um, uh and have a really um clear trajectory where they can get you know potentially promoted based on performance and so that okay even if you start out working the graveyard shift you're going to have a path to where you can raise a family and be a police officer yeah,
0: yeah really important to see i want to ask about three policies that get a lot of attention a lot of controversy the no pursuit policies like we see in chicago the cashless bail policies like illinois is doing in some other states new york and then the third one focusing on folks who don't go through a proper vetting being released early without the sort of screening that went into the FIRST STEP Act. When you listen to candidates on the front lines, particularly conservatives who are running this year and making grounds on the subject of crime, they bring up those three things all the time. How significant are those in terms of contributing to crime or contributing to the sense that police don't have the control they want to have over crime in their communities?
1: yeah well i'll start the cashless bail one um you know it it really depends on the the, the what the broader landscape is but uh, so for example you know if um if you get rid of bail and the judges don't have any authority to uh Deny bail to somebody who's a clear danger to public safety, um, then of course it's, you're going to end up with bad outcomes. And then you know, one of the other issues. So, but if you look at a place like New Jersey, where they they did expand the discretion of judges to deny uh release for any amount of money and they also put in place a lot of training technology pretrial trial supervision uh cortex reminders they've had very good outcomes there um but the problem is a lot of jurisdictions they don't put uh you know people just want to say oh, let's abolish this or abolish that but they don't think about and put the resources in place before you make a major change um so that uh you could actually uh have a sustainable Uh, outcomes. So, um, you know, as far as the the chase policies, I think that, um, I mean, part of it certainly depends on on what you're, I mean, I know there's been high speed car chases, right? Where, you know, some people have been killed, but so it's a tough, the question is, you know, are you going after, you know, serial killer or drug possession guy, you know, with the no-knock raids, for example. Um, So I just think that, the the police agencies its something that requires a lot of detail. And certainly there's got to be a little discretion, at least for the officer. And if he's got a question, he can call a commander. Um, The problem is if you get policies that are just too sweeping based on satisfying a political constituency rather than what is the best practice, you know, in law enforcement. And there's some good organizations like ICAP, the, the police chiefs group that really drill down on, on what, what's the best, um, practice based on the research rather than a political decision.
0: Yep, that's important. Actually having data points to make these decisions and not a not emotion, which sometimes drives a lot of our politics. There's been a divisive moment, I think, post-George Floyd. We had the defund the police movement, a lot of the let's let everyone out of prisons and see how they behave. And of course, then you end up with the Walkers or Christmas a parade killer and other situations like that your group always talks about the importance of reaching bipartisan consensus in terms of really getting lasting change in the criminal justice system. Do you think we might have reached a political exhaustion moment where people fighting in polar opposites now are willing to come to the middle and try to find a consensus on crime, balance the the results of good criminal justice reform with still keeping a law and order society? Are we making a moment now where maybe we get some consensus where we haven't had any for a while?
1: Yeah, you know, I think so. And and frankly part of the reason is I was just looking at some polling and I mean most Democrats, especially African Americans, they they want in many ways uh changes in policing and, and uh, different uh emphases. Um uh but and of course forfeiture, which we started out talking about, has, has disproportionately impacted um African Americans. Um but um Uh, but they don't want to to defund or abolish. So actually when you get beyond the politicians and actually look at Americans, there's, there's a fair amount of commonality. And then, you know, the other uh, point is like, you know, we, we can only have one set of laws everybody's got to be governed by, one court system. You know, you have a jury of 12 year people who are all part of that. So there's no way to opt out. I mean, like we talked about before we got on this interview, you know, school vouchers. In other areas, there's ways for people who, you know, want a, a different um, solution for their family to to opt out of the government solution. But in this area, it's like the most core function of government, and we all have to come together and find something because, you know, the first duty of government is to love. So our a liberty, house. safety, our property, and life. That's why we State came team. together to form a government.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable what the discussions are right now. As you look out onto the horizon, if there is a Republican Congress, at least one chamber, which seems like people are growing in consensus in, what will be some of the key things for conservatives to do to balance the desire to bring violent crime down at the same time achieve some of the civil liberty gains that I think people are looking to accomplish in reform?
1: yeah well i think you know over criminalization getting rid of silly criminal laws uh that 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 are um dealing with you know just uh, really mundane things like using the wrong light bulb and I mean it's not what's filling up our prisons but it is a threat liberty. Um, You know certainly we talked about forfeiture and I do hope other folks on the right will really look at you know crime prevention um, some of the violence interrupters and things that that realize that yes we need to target more law enforcement resources to high violent crime areas but we also need to um, invest in some of the the community based uh, ways of preventing crime and to building trust between police and communities. So, uh, and I, there has been uh, support on the Republican side for for that um, in the current Congress. So I, I, I expect that that'll continue. Um, I think sometimes people on the left are too quick to say it's societal causes of crime. And, you know, to be fair, sometimes some people on the right just want to look at every, let's just focus on processing every case and not focus on the bigger picture. But if you don't change the dynamics in some of these neighborhoods, it's just going to be a continuing revolving door of of people in and out of the justice system. And you really have to have those protective factors in place, you know, those community meetings, those associations, those um, things that are positive for kids to do after school instead of joining a gang. Those those are really important. Yeah,
0: so true indeed. One last question I want to ask. There is a large Part of America now, predominantly conservative, but not limited to conservatives that has a negative view of the FBI, that it's overreaching, that it has become more partisan and political. And it's driven in part by some of its own whistleblowers who've come forward raising questions. It's the most important premier law enforcement agency in America. How unproblematic is the current public sentiments about the FBI? And what can the FBI do to regain confidence so it does the work we want and doesn't create the distrust that so many now have in the aftermath of, you know, the Russia collusion case and other things like that?
1: Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I mean, one of the obviously transparency and accountability. I mean, obviously, some things can't be disclosed for, for good reasons. But, you know, there's been a lot of focus on saying, you know, local police departments should like on their website say, and I think that's right, how can you file a complaint? How many complaints have been filed? How many were found to be valid? How many were unfounded? And and some agencies have, have moved forward with those sorts of um transparency measures. And I think it it's it's good um for the public to to have that um to know who, who who they can raise an issue with and that and also of course have um be able to verify that there, it was investigated and and so forth, and then for us in the aggregate to have data on how often uh problems arise and and what the resolution was and so um I think the same would apply to the f b i that uh that, that you know uh and certainly Congress has a important oversight to, to hold hearings and, and get to the bottom of of making sure that that uh Cases were handled properly, and if if there were abuses if you know and even if somebody turns out to be guilty, it's still important to take a look at whether there might have been misconduct in an investigation and Unfortunately, one of the issues with uh plea bargaining, which is how almost all cases are resolved now uh to avoid what's called the trial penalty where you get an exponentially higher sentence if you go to trial. but one of the issues is if there was misconduct by police or law enforcement, that never gets uncovered. there's never a way to bring that up if you actually you know agree under pressure to plea out your case.
0: Yeah, such a great point. Mark, a quick question for you, because folks who are listening in may not be totally aware and engaged on the Council of Criminal Justice is doing really, really important work. What's the best way for people to follow your work personally and the council's work more broadly?
1: Oh, well, thanks. Yes, our website is council, uh, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, on CJ, counciloncj.org. And we got all sorts of reports and and data and publications there that folks can check out on a whole range of criminal justice
0: issues. It's a great resource. I've checked it often as we write about so many of these important issues, and I encourage everybody, go check that out. Council on CJ. Obviously, CJ standing for criminal justice. Council on CJ.org. Mark, what a great honor to have you on. I'd like to get you on. I think right after the elections, there's going to be some interesting ideas coming out of the new Congress. Love to get you back on to talk about some of that.
1: Oh, well, thanks for your work. And uh, it's really terrific, the things you uncover. So I'm I'm honored to be with you.
0: Thank you, sir. Great honor. And we'll have you back right after the elections. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, folks, that wraps up the Saturday editions. Tune in again tomorrow. We got our Sunday brunch podcast, an incredible lineup. Get a load of this lineup. Carrie Lake from Arizona. She's tearing it up. Now people are starting to talk about her as a national political figure for the Republican Party. Joe Kent, former Green Beret, now running for Congress and likely to win his seat in Washington State. Scott Rasmussen and Robert Cahaley, the two most trusted pollsters in America, back to back on the show. And then we're going to end up with our good friend and colleague here at Just the News. He's incredible podcaster on the Justin News Podcast Network, Victor Davis Hanson, historian, thought leader, columnist, all-around great guy, and also one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He's going to talk to you about the Great Reset, and the danger that it poses to the American experience. Don't lose sight of that word, the Great Reset. It is a marketing term for a liberal globalist agenda that takes power away from the individual and gives it to the collective state. Victor Davis Hanson is going to break it down and tell you why you should care about it and how you beat it back at the end of our Sunday show. Great show for Sunday. We'll be back tomorrow. Be sure to tune in. God bless and have a great night. And you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you gotta do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation, the way to do it with gold. All you gotta do to get started on that journey with my good friends, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 98 right now.